Hi, my name is Michael Warren. I'd like to give you some background on one of my best friends. I call him my brother from another mother. Your host, Jed Hughes. Jed climbed up the football coaching ranks working for and alongside seven Hall of Fame coaches, including Chuck Knoll, Bud Grant, Tony Dungy, and Bo Schimbeckler, just to name a few. Now, I met Jed at my alma mater, UCLA, where I was an All-American basketball player and two-time captain for a couple of Coach John Wooden's championship teams. While Jed was a great defensive coordinator at UCLA recruiting a historic class, I was a cast member on the Emmy Honor television series, Hill Street Blues. Jed somehow creatively involved me in his recruiting pitch, and that turned out to be a lot of fun. After a great stint at UCLA, Jed worked in the NFL for the Minnesota Vikings, Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Cleveland Browns. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Jed holds a master's degree from the University of Stanford and a PhD from the University of Michigan and has led the sports consulting practice for two global executive search firms. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri, and four of the five power conference commissioners, along with many athletic directors and C-suite executives across the industry. I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes podcast. Through this podcast series, Jed will dive into what makes leaders, coaches, and executives great, and what separates the Hall of Famers from the rest. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Welcome to the Jed Hughes Podcast. I want to welcome Todd Lewicki, the CEO and president of the Seattle Kraken. Todd has the most elaborate sets of experiences in professional sports. He has a Super Bowl ring from the Seattle Seahawks. He's been the part of four major startups for franchises, including the Minnesota Wild, Tampa Bay Lightning, the Seattle Kraken, and the Seattle Sounders. He also has experience as the COO of the NFL as Rogers' first chief operating officer and brought with him the experience of what it was like to be at the franchise level. His ability to relate to fans and in communities is unprecedented. The 12th man is a result of the community work that he built while CEO of the Seattle Seahawks. Welcome, friends. Todd, you're unequaled in leading professional sports teams. The way you make people feel at ease, no matter where you've been, always that comment, Todd really makes you feel good. Well, when you go to the Super Bowl and lose, when you go to the Stanley Cup finals and lose, you become, you know, some humility creeps into your life. I don't know if that's fair or true, but I would say, you know, live by the golden rule and things usually work out pretty good.
So we've been in this pandemic. How did you and your family handle it? My wife was uh, really vigilant on keeping us safe. Uh, I wouldn't say I was dismissive of that. She worked harder at it than I did, but I eventually came around to the idea that if I'm going to be a leader, I need to set the pace. And so we've been pretty doggone careful. Um, and it's scary. You know, I've just turned 60. I feel like I'm in pretty reasonable health, but you know, this is scary and there are people counting on all of us. And it's not just our personal well-being, it's also people around us. So, but who would have thought, you know, my dad went through such an interesting time with, you know, World War II and various things. Well, anyone alive today is living through an epic time full of challenges, amazing turns and twists in the road for sure. I mean, it's like we're in a fog and no one knows yeah. you're out in the fog in your boats. So you know what that's like. It'll be interesting to see what's on the other side of this. It's not just the pandemic. There's a great deal of social unrest. And on the other side of this, do we end up with a more sensitized society? Uh, are there some positive things that come out of this? I haven't had a cold, by the way, in five months since all this started. It's been interesting to see what uh, washing your hands can result in and just paying attention to, to germs and all those things. You look at your career and you've touched all the major sports other than baseball. And you're sitting with the Krakens now and you've been with four hockey teams, three of which you launched. Talk about your current role with the Krakens on how you've gone about putting this whole thing together. As a young guy, I worked for the Canucks. And then uh, I had the great privilege of helping start the Minnesota Wild. I was the CEO of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Fantastic, remarkable experience. And now the Seattle Kraken. I didn't get to say that word, the Seattle Kraken, for a long time. I was hiding it in the darkest recesses of my mind. You know, not very long ago, we, we rolled it out to the world. A crazy experience. You hoped you got it right, but you couldn't test it. No real focus groups. A very tight group of people who worked on it. You know, you just hope you were a good listener. You hope you're a good interpreter of the fans' passion, but it worked out pretty well. You know, it's a fun time to be with the NHL. The playoffs are going on right now. Phenomenal. I think Gary Bedman, longest tendered commissioner, is doing the best work in his career. Uh, new CBA, the ability to relaunch as they have, uh, to do it in Toronto and Edmonton. 7,000 tests have been given so far. No positive tests so far. Well, I mean, look, you grew up around hockey. I did. You know, we grew up in St. Louis, and when the Blues came on the scene, uh, St. Louis had had minor hockey, but the Blues came on the scene, and they were immediate cup contender. Uh, and they played the Bruins, and, you know, that epic goal by Bobby Orr, none of us will ever forget it. I believe it was Noel Picard, uh, the defender, who actually is tripping Bobby Orr in the air. Later that same life, I'm in my office in Tampa, and my assistant came in and said, Bobby Orr's on the phone for you. This has really been fun in so many ways. And the thought of meeting Bobby Orr or having Scotty Bowman, who was the coach, write a note. Those are, you know, I'm still a fan. I still love the game. And I still i am always in awe when, you know, a legend. I remember uh, interviewing Ron Francis here for the job. And when he came off the elevator, my immediate reaction is, man, I need to get his autograph before he leaves today because Hall of Famer, really cool. So when you think about, the wild, the lightning, and your current role, how did those different sets of experiences all help you? Each one of those, I mean, you're building community, you're, this one you're building an arena, 
I think you're building an arena with Bob Nagley as well. You kind of rebuild communities with the way you engage people. My brother Tim and I grew up poor kids. We really faced a lot of challenges. Uh, my mom died when I was nine. My stepmother died when I was 17. Believe it or not, I spent some formative years in a mobile home. I've said this more than once. We'd drive by a double wide and I'd say someday. I came from humble beginnings. I am definitely, uh, you know, in a room of people, I'm not the smartest person for sure. I've always acknowledged that. But if you're a good listener and if you can absorb from other people, you don't have to be the smartest person. I didn't go to college, nor did my brother Tim. You don't have to be the best educated. But if you can absorb from others, do it with a positive filter on all the people we meet in our life. If you just took the positives from each person you met, the cumulative effect of that would be a sense of positiveness, but also potency. You know, in my journey, I've been around so many wonderfully smart people. You know, in Minnesota, it was Jack Sperling. At the Lightning, it was, you know, Jeff Vinnick, one of the finest, smartest people ever. I recall early on, he was managing a massive fund and he uh, called to make some trades. And unaided, he made 20 trades just up. And he hung up the phone and said, what were we talking about? And I was like, oh my gosh, average ticket prices and season ticket benefits. I felt uh, it was also insignificant compared to the, you know, the things he did on a regular basis. But Jeff Finnick taught me so much, an incredibly wonderful person. And everywhere I've been, people have, I've, I've been enriched by the people I've been around. And I've had the great privilege being around some pretty amazing people. Paul Allen was an amazing person. Uh, Roger Goodell was an amazing person. My brother, Tim, is an amazing person. And now I work for a guy named David Bonderman, who uh, has so much experience, so much intellect, and so much wisdom. And the key is to listen, to listen, and to open up and listen. And if we could all better listen, we'd all move along in the world at a faster pace, but we'd all collectively to be to a better place. So if you're talking about Jeff Vinnick, what was the one thing you say he helped you get better at? His kindness and decency was truly remarkable. And he never lost that, no matter what the journey took him. He went from a guy, he grew up in a nice home, but he became a pretty wealthy guy. Um, I, I once gave us, I was giving a speech and I talked about Jeff running the Magellan Fund, the largest fund in the world at the age of 33. And I sat back down at the table and he leaned over and said, I was actually 32. There's a guy who ran the largest fund in the world at the age of 32. His calmness, his decency, uh, the way he treated people, not just when other people were watching, but specifically when no one was watching. Just a remarkably wonderful guy. Uh, but, you know, in Tampa, I had a chance to work with Steve Griggs, who's now gone on to do a wonderful job running the organization. And secession is a really big deal. The day I left, he took over and they got a little bit better, which I was so proud. A lot of people sort of move on and that's it. But the Lightning have actually gotten stronger. And then the other guy down, you know, at the Lightning, who I learned so much from was Steve Eisenman, captain of the Red Wings for 19 years. Just imagine the wisdom accumulated doing that for 19 years. So how has hockey evolved since you started? Well, it's a much speedier game. You know, the day of clutching and grabbing is now gone. Speed counts. Goals get scored. A lot of parity in the league. You know, hockey players, everyone goes on a journey. 
But the journey of a hockey player, especially players to make it all the way to the NHL, is really quite extraordinary. You know, they give up normal life at some point in time. They go away. Many of the kids go away at 16 and live in a foreign city. And then the great ones get drafted. And many of them go back to their junior clubs and continue to ride buses. So by the time they make it to the NHL, they're grateful. They've been through a lifetime of experiences and they're still young. And then the game is teaches teamwork. It is just fundamental. When you have four lines changing all the time and a player's on the ice for an average a minute, a minute, 10, a minute, 20, teamwork is, is such an important thing. They fired the coach. Is the collective belief of people where amazing things can happen. People unite and have a collective belief. And our country needs more of that today. Chris Zimmerman is my friend. He runs the St. Louis Blues. It's incredible, you know, the love of the game. But to watch a team, I'm not sure there's many sports where this could happen. But in January, they were in dead last place, not just in their division or the conference, the entire league. And 31 teams in their dead last, they came back and won the Stanley Cup. And when you say, what really happened there? How did they do that? At some point in time, they decided they were going to set aside their differences. They were going to, again, believe in one another. And hockey has this crazy thing. A skate is actually rounded, right? The skate has, or the blade is rounded. And if you're confident, you lean in and you inherently go faster. And if you lack a little confidence, you're going to lean back and the skate doesn't go as fast. And so it's an amazing equalizer. So you got into football, you left hockey, you came to Seattle, uh, you inherited a, a coach who was already in place, uh, and then eventually you took on the Trailblazers, and you also went through a coaching transition, general manager transition. So talk a little bit about what that experience was working for Paul uh, and you know how you navigated his communication style and how you were take, able to take your enthusiasm to the 12th fan. My dad was a really big football fan. He wasn't as much of a hockey fan, so he was really happy when I uh, got involved. Paul Lamp saved the team. Uh, the team had literally moved to Southern California. Butcher block paper was on the windows here, and they convinced Paul it had to be passed statewide. People told him he was crazy, but he conducted a statewide campaign, gave up all of his anonymity, and he convinced the citizens he funded part of that stadium, and he saved the team. Pretty noble start for his ownership. There were some challenges, but so much was right. The stadium was beautiful. The team had been saved. Getting Bob Whitsett actually helped architect that. And, uh, you know, when I came, uh, there might have been some cross-purposes with Bob. He ended up leaving the organization. Today, he and I are friends. You know, that's an important part of all of this for me as well is, even when there's some disconnects in our life, we, all, we can go back. There still is time to connect. And, and I'm very proud that when I came back, I reconnected with Bob, and, and we've now built a pretty good friendship. But, you know, Paul was an amazing guy. Um, I regret not saying some things to him I wish I had said uh, with his passing a couple of years ago. I would have told him again how much I admired him. I would have thanked him again for changing my life. I would have thanked him for doing all the things he's done in this community. Um, and his life was taken when he was way too young because he had a lot more to give. And in these times, I was just thinking about this the other day. In these times, the passion he would have felt 
for not only solving a global pandemic, because with Ebola, he was very involved. And he has always had a deep interest in those kinds of things, but also the social issues. He cared a lot about humanity. And uh, he was a bit of a shy and reserved guy, but we should all be so fortunate to have the impact that he did. And he could have done anything and lived anywhere. He chose to live here, and he had an enormous forever impact on this community. Well, you also had to take over the Trailblazers. A little bit, but, you know, that was a little bit of, you know, I was I worked with a guy named Bert Cold, and we ended up finding a guy named Larry Miller. Uh, Larry, I think, was the first African-American team president. As an aside, I'm immensely proud of the diversity that we're building in our team. We made it a priority when I came. I believe that there's diversity is still a really uh, important issue in our professional sports. We do not have enough diversity of women. We do not have enough racial diversity. And we're trying to be an organization that can help set the pace on that issue. And we've made great progress. Uh, It's super exciting. Uh, We put our mind to it. uh, And what we have found out is not only is there no compromise in having a diverse organization, in fact, there's extraordinary benefit. You know, we made it a priority. We made it a priority of the leadership. And uh, I was on a call today, a Zoom call, looking at all the faces on that call. We've done a good job. You also went through, and we had a chance to work together on uh, a football transition. Letting Jim Mora go after a year, unfair, uh, not right for him, not right for his family. The day I told him that he wasn't going to be the coach was not a good day. You know, it goes down as, as a dark day, but the organization uh, needed to be rebooted. Initially, we're searching for a GM, and in right. fact, you right. were helping. Right. And what we found were a lot of younger candidates, but we had seen that sometimes younger candidates who are GMs didn't have the complete and full training. So then we started saying, hey, what if we what if we started over and found a young, you know, fire in the belly GM and packaged them with a, a coach with some wisdom and and that's what's happened. And ten years later, Pete Carroll, John Schneider, uh, phenomenal and their best days might be in front of them. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I mean, between they they and the San Antonio Spurs, between the head coach and the GM working together, those two was yeah. And, and how about, like, the sustainability of these guys? Because, you know, in this world of professional sports, GMs always feel like they're, they're hired to be fired, and the same with coaches. And that's not how it was, Jed, was it? That's not <laughs> how it was in the day with Bo. That was not how it was with Chuck Knoll. But it is today, and it's, it's, it's an unfortunate outcome that uh, people are now conditioned that if hey, something's wrong with the team, fire the coach, and let's try that. The other thing you've done is you started the Sounders, which was incredible in terms of the success of a a new franchise. Talk a little bit about how that came about. I didn't start the Sounders. I helped start the Sounders. Anything good that I've ever done in my life uh, was done with other people. A basic premise of my life is I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I never have been. But that's okay if you can find ways to build partnerships and you can bring best the best of intentions and passion, then People will let you sit at the table and do things like help start the Sounders. But that was really Adrian Hanauer. Uh, it was Joe Roth. Uh, Mr. Allen uh, eventually you know, gave us the green light and said, yes, I'm in. 
we brought the resource of the Seahawks, the stadium, and then Adrian did his magic. Every year they've been in the league, they made the playoffs. They're the reigning champs. And it's great to start something. How do you keep it in orbit? And Adrian did that through winning. Certainly the league changed a lot with the arrival of Beckham, with the start of the Sounders. And now the MLS is one of the great stories in sports globally. Yeah, no doubt. You end up spending time in the NFL. I mean, you left Tampa Bay to become the COO, really the first time you moved into a large semi-bureaucratic organization where you weren't really uh, the person you're running the, the operation and it gets can get political. So what was that experience like with the NFL? No question. It's the most powerful league in the world. And it didn't just get there by chance. You know, Roger Goodell, I have a picture on my phone uh, that I shot. It was a Polaroid of Roger as a kid in his pajamas sleeping with a football. And he showed me that and I said, I need to take a picture. And so I took a picture and it, it was a forever reminder of the deep love he had for this whole thing. Uh, the NFL has in their possession a letter that Roger wrote his dad. Uh, Roger from college wrote his dad and said, someday I want to be the commissioner of the NFL. It's true. I mean, this shit sounds like it's made up in Hollywood. It's true. So he came to the NFL as an intern. There's photographs of Roger driving Pete Rozelle around. And he moved his way up through the organization. You know, I'd say one of the challenges of working through Roger is he knew everything because he'd done everything. Right. Uh, and it's one of the greatest assets the league has. But, you know, being the chief operating officer, working for a guy who knew everything. But, you know, I got to know Roger and you talked about community uh, in Seattle in 2009 during a very, very difficult economy. I had the the opportunity to be the chairman of the United Way campaign here and. It was a massive campaign. It, it always has been. This is one of the largest United Ways in America. The campaign goal was $100 million. And in some parts of the country, we were in a mild de depression. This was definitely a recession here in Seattle. But we decided the final act of that campaign, 12 months, the last thing we were going to do is climb Mount Rainier and plant right. the 12th man flag and the United Way flag. I was at a league meeting. Roger and I had started to build a pretty good friendship. That's a whole nother story. But he walked by, said, hey, uh, Kamish, if you have a second, I want to run some by. So he came by when there was a break. And I said, we're going to do the coolest thing. We're going to climb Mount Rainier. We're going to do it for charity. The United Way, I know. And he's a fitness guy. So I thought, okay, I tried. Forgot about it. About a week later, Pete Abitani writes me a note and says, the commissioner's interested. Can you send me some material? You know, Roger, people wonder what he's like. All the stuff going on that day, all the information he's taking in, he leaves the meeting and the seed has been planted. So we sent him uh, information. I sent him a book, How to Climb Rainier. It's like 800 pages. He clearly didn't read it, uh, but he knew he had to train. And so he was already in incredible physical shape. And this was probably in uh, – this league meeting might have been, you know, the one right after the season. So he had months and months and months to train. He did. He was going up and down uh, the athletic club in New York uh, with a backpack on with weight. Later that same life, he's in his plane. He's coming into the Seattle area, looks out the window of the plane, and he's on a lateral with Rainier. And he looks out the window and he said, holy shit. And it was at that moment he realized what he was doing. 
And what's amazing about Rainier is that, you know, we're at the, we're at sea level here. It goes up quick. It's 14,400 feet. 8,000 people try to climb it a year. 4,000 people make it. People have referred to it as a hike. It's not a hike, but we did it together. He hit a rough patch uh, at about two in the morning when we hit a crevasse, but he chose to keep going. We summited at sunrise and we'll forever be brothers because of it. That's an incredible story. So working at the NFL, I mean, how is that different for you from a skill set perspective? Yeah, it was different because, you know, I had been a team operator my whole life and you know, I had uh, I'd kind of been a hands-on guy of operating franchises and thinking about music for games and, you know, a, a line operator. And now I was kicked up to headquarters. You know, those same principles apply. You try and live by the golden rule. Uh, I cared a lot about the people who worked there. Uh, I, quite frankly, left there probably too soon. I was just starting to get comfortable in the role. Um, and then this happened. Uh, the draw of my brother, the chance to come back to Seattle, which really did feel like home, the chance to start an NHL team from scratch. It ain't been easy. There's been some incredible challenges. You know, we still have big challenges in front of us, but it was what I was trained to do. So when you think about if you're going to give somebody advice in terms of starting a franchise, what are the two or three things they have to do? You know, the greatest asset a team has are their fans. So um, I'm, I'm soon going to talk to uh, the new CEO at the Arizona Coyotes. But at some point in time, he needs to sit back and think about the fans and think about who they are and who they should be and think about the community. And the fans, I've always said they make three investments, emotion, time, and a distant third is money. If you can engage them emotionally, they will make the time and they will find the money. It's that emotional engagement. Now, a good part of our brain we don't use, but things register in our brain all the time. Fans are smart. Um, you know, moves that owners and, and management make sometimes lag behind the fans saying months and months or years before you need to make this move. Fans are really smart. You've got to embrace the fans, embrace their values. They want to win. I mean, they're making this emotional investment and they want to return on that investment. And ultimately, that big part of that return is winning. But it's not the only thing. They want to see an organization committed to the community. They want to see an organization that has shared values. They want to see a game presentation that looks and feels unique to who they are and where they are. And those are all really important things. I heard a story about uh, Arizona, and this was some years back, so I'm not going to indict anyone. but. They realized, oh, my gosh, the financial success might be doing more for visiting team fans, wanting them to come to games. So the Bruins were playing in the building, and they put on Sweet Caroline. It made a whole bunch of visiting team fans happy. And when local fans were there that night, it drove them away. So just live by the golden rule. Embrace your fans. Be a fan. Live the life of a fan. And if you do it'll take you to the promised land. And I, I think in naming the team, you know, when we started out, I was like, cracking, what is it? Well, the fans kept saying it. And we took enough time, literally years. It was a two-year journey. And over that period of time, it was an enduring name in the fans' mind. The people who I'd say, hey, what do you think the team name should be? Sockeye, Steelhead, Emeralds. 
and they would share that. But when you talk to somebody about the Kraken, it was usually with some real emotion behind it. And if you listen, so that whole team name thing, that name came from the fans. That was not something that a New York branding agency was ever going to spit out. Uh, and that's part of the, the wonderful part of it. The fans also, when pressed to say, what does it look like? They didn't know. They did not think it was a cartoon character. So ultimately, the mark we designed was noble, we think, authentic, and the creature is not explicit. It lives in the theater of the mind, and that's probably where it's going to stay. And it'll be interesting once we get into mascot, the debate on this, uh, because now the brand has got to get dimension here. And if I'm a betting person, you will not see a creature as our mascot. I think we'll keep it in the theater of people's minds. It's We're not sure what it looks like, but we know it's scary as hell. And we know peril awaits. And that should be the feeling the visiting team uh, feels. And if we can create that feeling in our building, then we've done, we've done justice to the fan's name here. So when you mentioned fan, where does ownership come in in terms of having the alignment you need with you, the uh, hockey side and ownership? As, you, as it relates to your sets of experiences. For Jeff Vinnick, when he moved to Tampa, he became a Tampinian. Say that twice, Jed. Uh, Tampinian. Yeah. He, uh, and, you know, I think the great thing here is that while David Bonderman doesn't live in Seattle, he went to the University of Washington. He was the security guard at the Space Needle. He chairs the University of Washington's finance committee. And he's allowed us to build a very Seattle-centric organization, including lots of great local investors. Ultimately, fandom is unleashed when you connect to the local fans and they feel that that team is an embodiment of who they are in the community. And that's the power of uh, what happened with the 12th man. Um, and it was something important to the team. Mike McCormick uh, retired the number 12. 1986, the NFL had a home crowd rule. One year, if the home crowd impeded the visiting team's offense, it was a penalty. And it lasted one year. And the crowds were so loud at the kingdom that they retired the number 12 in honor of the fans. Again, that wasn't my idea. It wasn't our organization's idea. We were just listeners. And it was Steve Largent who came up and talked to me about it. There it was. So we, put a, we did put a flagpole in the end zone. And the first day that the group raised the 12th man flag, polite smattering of applause. About two years later, NFC Championship game, Paul Allen raises the 12th man flag, one of the coolest moments of my career. That's exceptional. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, you, you look at your journey, Todd, just the friendship that you and I developed about 15 years ago. I mean, you've been a key part in terms of my career, in terms of helping us. Uh, with our brand and helping us get opportunities. So I want to really thank you for that. And, you know, our careers are, those are things we can actually control in our lives. There's a lot we can't control. We have challenges in personal health or other parts of our personal lives, but in careers, we can make choices. And when I think about my career, it is without regret. I've met so many wonderful, fantastic people and it's created in me a real patriotism about our country because I've seen so many wonderful people. My strong feelings on diversity really came through sport. You know, an NFL locker room is an incredibly diverse place. The guys that play the game, 
It's incredible, man, how they go about doing it. And even as great as broadcast is and storytelling, it still doesn't even get close to the real story of what goes on in a locker room before or after a game or on a team plane, you know, an NHL team plane where bags and bags of ice go down the aisle to the back of the plane because these guys are true warriors and they're doing things that most sane people never do, playing hurt, playing injured, playing with pain and getting up the next day after sleeping for four hours and going to practice uh, on a red eye after a red eye flight. I mean, it's the sport has been wonderful because I think it does bring out the best of the human spirit. And I think this is a time in our society where we can learn even more from sport. And when I talked about the Blues doing what they did and putting aside differences for a greater good, that's what our country needs now. We need to unite. And the, the right and the left have polarized our country. There is a whole bunch of good stuff in the middle and great people. I still believe our best days are in front of us. So what do you see your role as it relates to social justice uh, and your players' role and your coaches' role and your ownership role? I grew up in a town, in that little town that I told you about, and the principal came into the, my when I was a senior, came in and told a joke about a, a black guy in a Cadillac, and he used the N-word. And I felt this thing inside of me that never left me of how wrong that was. I've cared a lot about the issue. When I look at the sports business, there's not nearly enough gender diversity, and it's it's missing. Just go to a league meeting. Right. Um, there's just not enough diversity, gender, but you know racial diversity, and we're still work in progress. But I think on the other end of it, you're going to see a very very diverse organization, and then the ultimate test of that diverse organization is to be a high performance organization. But so far, so good. Our organization right now is, I think, one of the most diverse in sports. Our culture is really good. It's not because of me. It's the collective energy that this organization is now feeding off of. You know, that's that's to believe in the human spirit, that when you put the right people in the right room and you leave it, good things happen. And that happens on teams all the time. I had a chance to speak to Chris Zimmerman and the Blue staff. He does a week, and I... I just was like, I can't believe what you guys did. In the journey of life, dead last place, you win the Stanley Cup, and the coach is introduced in game seven of the Stanley Cup finals as interim coach Craig Rubio. Amazing. So what is that that happened there? And if you could bottle it up and apply it to all sorts of other things, the world would be a better place. So in terms of accomplishments, you thought of one or two in your career that you're most proud of? I go to community probably when I think about being a part of organizations that impacted people and community. And that's what I'm really looking forward to with uh, Seattle Kraken is uh, I want to win. I can't wait for opening day. I can't wait for the first goal. But the ability to take a kid who might have just lost a mother and to give that kid some hope. And I was that kid. Nine years old. And my stepmother died when I was 17. Uh, I lost two mothers before I was 18 years old. The world was dark. And sports was solace. And so to think that we're in a position where every game we play out of the 17,000 people there, someone is going to be there who is having one of those moments. And it won't be just one person. It'll be a lot of people who come to games and have a moment that they won't forget with a father and a daughter, a mother, a son, a stranger connecting with somebody else. Those are all the things that happen 
uh, and venues. And that's why when people say, do you think people are going to get back together and cheer again? They, uh, they will, because there's too much good that comes out of that uh, for communities and sports. You know, it's interesting because I think sports have been held to a higher standard relative to community. Teams make it a point to give back. I've never been with a team that didn't have that as part of what they were chartered to do. And I've loved it, man. I've, I've tried to jump in and pour, you know, fuel on that. And, uh, but I think it's something that teams and leagues have really done a good job of is taking community serious and every game for most teams, every game played has a community motive. And that's, that's a cool deal. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking time to visit. My pleasure. Wash your hands, wear your mask. This right. too shall pass. 